0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, let's go to Ezra. Ezra chapter 3, in our Pursuing God series today, we're going to talk about the priority of worship, the priority of worship. You know, the last two years have produced many debates that you've probably seen about the church, many debates for the church, and many debates even within the church. And one of the biggest of those, though I'm hesitant to say which has been the biggest because they've all been like major, it feels anyway. But one of the biggest debates that even continues is the value of gathering in person for worship. The value of in-person gathering for the church. Does that make the church? And our passage today is going to help us in this way by looking at the priority of worship. You know, when you begin the process of rebuilding your life as the exiles were doing as they returned, the question naturally begins where do you start? Where do you start? So I want to look at where they begin today and see what it is we can glean from their beginning for our own. Let me go to Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to read the first six verses before we continue. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of josadak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written... And offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. When the exiles returned to Judah, their first work was to restore their worship as the center of all of their life. This is what worship was for the people of that day. It centered their whole identity and their whole life You see, worship was a priority in order to accomplish the mission of God's glory in their returning. The reason God called them back to Judah was to reestablish worship in the land that he had given to them as the fulfillment of his promise. You see, friends, worship must hold the priority of the mission of God because it is the ultimate purpose of God's mission. The reason mission exists in the world today is to multiply worship across the earth today. And so I want us to see this morning that worship centers God's people on Jesus to serve His mission that produces more glory through worship. As we walk through this chapter today, we're going to look at five characteristic outcomes. Five characteristic outcomes that demonstrate why is it that we as a people today must prioritize worship. And we're going to see them from the reasons they were giving or the practices that they were given priority to in Ezra's day. And so when we go to the scriptures, verses 1 through 3 tells us that once they returned, they gathered in Jerusalem. And he says in the seventh month. You know, getting settled takes time, right? If you've moved recently, you may have some boxes stacked in your garage. There are just some boxes that seem to say, not yet, not yet. And if you're like me, that could go on for 12, 16, 18 months. I mean, why finish what can be done later, right? That's what it feels like at times. So getting settled takes time, but their unsettledness in life was because everything was uncertain. They were returning, many of them, to a familiar place but to unfamiliar circumstances. They were returning to a place that some of them had been and some of them had not been but it wasn't the same place that they left. You know, I can remember as a child when you're sitting in a room with typically other children, the adults didn't participate in this much, someone would move. And their seat was preferable to another. And so the other would run and take their seat. And when they returned, they went, you took my seat. And the other person would say, move your meat, lose your seat. Right? I mean, that was, oh, that's right. I mean, that just made sense in the world at that time, right? Well, when they left and went into exile, other people took over the areas, their homes, their pastures and those kinds of things so as they returned they would find people who were less than willing to give up the life that they had made over the last number of generations but they would not wait until their lives were settled and comfortable to center their lives on the priority worship. That's what he's telling us. When the seventh month came, the seventh month was not how long they had been there, but it was the seventh month in their calendar, which was a critical month in their annual worship and their annual observation of what God was doing. And it was when they celebrated the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths was an annual Feast of the Year, and it's what I call the Theological Foundation that justifies camping as a spiritual labor. Why? Because people would come from wherever they lived and they would pitch these tents, what we would call them today, and they would live in them all around the city and outside the city walls. People by the thousands would come and they would camp, if you will. It's kind of a, kind of a, a, a Christian Woodstock, though the activities were a little different. It always followed the highest and the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement. And throughout... All of the week and the season of celebration, there were specific sacrifices that were to be made. And so as the text tells us, they, they made the sacrificial offerings and kept the fires as they were supposed to, as they were instructed in the law of God by the man of Moses. That's what it's telling us. It's it's telling us that, that what they were doing was adhering to the instructions that God had given them. They were giving priority in their life to the things that God had commanded of them. That's what Ezra is highlighting for us here. And they are prioritizing faithfulness in worship from the very beginning because God had said this is what is important. The first characteristic outcome I want you to understand and see today for why we must prioritize worship is this. When worship gets prioritized, it unites God's people under Jesus' lordship. It unites God's people under Jesus' lordship. You see, they gathered as one, and they worshiped according to the law of Moses, what we would consider today to be according to the Bible. They didn't offer excuses, which could have very easily been done, as to why God would you know, be okay with them taking some time off. I mean, so many things are uncertain, and we're just not sure, and we've got a lot of work to do. Let's get that done, and then we'll figure the rest out. They didn't offer excuses as to why God would understand and give them a pass or make an exception for how they or if they worshipped at this time, considering everything that was going on. Rather, the exiles in their return prioritized their worship according to God's command as it was written in the law And this united them under his rule. Yes, physically it united them by bringing them all together. But what we will see is a much more potent unity that arises from their being together. You see friends, worship according to God's word centers our whole life on Jesus. There's a rhythm, there's a pattern by which life moves and flows. We recognize it by the the things that we wear on our arms and the calendars by which we schedule our life. We see the sun rise and the sun set when it's actually not the sun moving at all, right? But life is advancing. And what we come to understand is that in the midst of this, God built rhythms for us to practice as well. And in these practices, he's given us instruction and the regular gathering of his people becomes the centering for our whole life, both as a people and as individual. You see, worship aligns our lives with God's word. You had to refuse to plan something else today to get here. You had to say no to something else in order to say yes to this. One pastor friend of mine says it this way, Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. Why? Because you've got to make a decision about what you're going to give the priority to in your life. And you see, worship aligns our lives with God's Word that the Spirit of God might be able to transform us by the Word of God taking root in us. And the more that the Word of God takes root in us, the more we are made like Jesus Christ, and the more we are made like Jesus Christ, the more our our lives begin to align in unity with one another. You see, unity is not just something that we corporately make a decision or an effort to accomplish. Unity is a spiritual work that is accomplished by the Spirit of God and it flows out of a Jesus-centered worship when each one of us are becoming more like Him. Unity is not about agreement. Unity is about surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what he wants to do. And that's the first characteristic outcome that we see from the exiles in their return for us today. Now when we come to verse 3, it says they set the altar in its place. The first thing they rebuilt when they returned was the altar. It didn't have a temple structure around it, didn't even have walls surrounding it. It was just an open air altar. And it tells us that the, some were living in the city and, and some were living out in the region and in the suburbs, if you will, of that day. But they were living among very other different people life was different than it had been than many of them remembered when it left and that difference made it uncertain because the people who were inhabiting the land when they returned weren't inherently friendly to their mission or values their response was I don't really care what your God told you to do what does that have to do with me Why do your values affect me? These are the kinds of arguments that they were confronted by. But one driving motivation, verse 3 and verse 4 tells us, that fueled their worship was the fear of the people who were in the land. What are they going to do? How are they going to respond And what might that do to affect us? You see, friends, fear always drives us either in what it is that we pursue or what it is that we work to avoid in our life. And as one commentator made note about this passage, he said, As God's people have discovered repeatedly, united worship is the necessary means of dealing with difficult or dangerous situations. Boy, isn't that true? I remember after Y2K. Remember Y2K? Man, the day after churches swelled. A week later, you couldn't find people. 9-11 got somebody's attention because the churches couldn't house the people that were running in to find a word from God. A month later, they weren't there anymore. Things calmed back down life seemed to return to normal, evidently we don't need God anymore. And so we understand, as the commentator says, it's a necessary means of dealing with difficult or dangerous situations. And we acknowledge that out of our fear so often. But amidst a growing animosity between people living in Judah and the returning exiles, Ezra shows this. He shows us an example of what a believing community that's living in a hostile environment looks like. People who are depending upon one another. Maybe you've seen some of the recent videos that I've seen of Christians in Ukraine who are gathering in public spaces, in homes, and in private places to sing together, to encourage one another, and to find strength with one another In the days that they are facing. Friends. In light of this first characteristic. I say to us. Worship has a powerful practical use. That helps us and strengthens us in our daily life. And it's the first reason that says. It ought to be our priority. Because of what it provides from the Lord for us. The second characteristic comes to us though in a very direct response to the fear that they were countering. When worship gets prioritized, it conquers fears that threaten faithfulness to mission. When worship becomes our priority, it conquers the fears that threaten our faithfulness to mission. When we begin to go, oh no, look at the situation, oh no, look at the circumstance, what has God said or what should I do? And we begin to consider all the options that are there. Fear can drive us to not listen to God or to neglect what we know God would say instead of helping us to trust and to obey even in the midst of great threat. You see, the Feast of Booths was a whole season that culminated the whole year. It was celebrated in the autumn. It was at the end, just after the harvest had come in, and so harvest time, as we typically think of thanksgiving itself, was a season of celebration. It was a season of abundance. It was a season of recognizing the provision of God's hand and giving Him thanks and returning our praise to Him and our thanksgiving to Him. This is what the Feast of Booths represented, but this was in the midst of a year that was filled with threats, of a year where they had not even had the full amount of time to prepare to plant and to harvest the whole crop so their crop probably didn't remind them of the great abundance of God's blessing but was really more of a question of will God provide if we didn't get the crop harvested you see the constant presence of fear must be confronted by a regular sustained practice of the priority of worship in one's life From both our personal devotion and spending time in the Word of God and letting the Spirit of God speak to us through the Word and in our prayer life with God. Not only bowed low and eyes closed and and, and life uh, laid uh, low before God, but in our everyday life of going about and talking to the Lord and communing with Him in the everyday details of our life. But not only in our personal devotion, in our congregational gathering. There are things that God has ordained for your life that will only happen in the congregational gathering that you will not get outside for your life. That's why it's so important, friends. You see, countering fears regularly pres- uh, uh, that are regularly present in your life will never be conquered just by a momentary escapism. You can come to worship and you can, you can experience the regular presence of God that's countering your fears. But until you prioritize worship and you begin to press your life in to understand what is transpiring right now, you're going to walk away from this and you may have a moment of high, but money's going to hit you. And if you're looking at this as just a momentary escapism instead of a regular priority for your life, that high will leave you and you'll be left to wondering and threatened by the same fears. You see, worship anchored their lives because it was their first act. And and their first act of worship was not even in response to their situation. But it was what? It was a response to God's faithfulness. They were not being dominated by their situation, but they were fully aware of it. So their prayers didn't begin, God, this is what I need from you. Their prayers began, God, you've been so good to me. Their prayers didn't begin, God, you know what I'm facing here, man. I'm scared to death. Their prayers began, God, I know you're greater than anything. And I just need to take a moment to get the things that are on the front of my mind to the back of my mind and maybe even off of my mind so I can let you consume my mind. Because otherwise, it's going to drive me away from you. You see, friends, until the fears of this world are consumed in worship, they'll constantly distract you, they'll deter you, and they'll even seek to drive you away from the only one that can conquer them, God himself. The most potent way to trust God in any situation is always to begin by worshiping him for his faithfulness. To worship him for his faithfulness. Because worship that gets fueled by the promise of God's faithfulness will always defeat any fear that is arising and threatening. Always. There's no fear that stands next to God and competes or compares. When we get to verse 6, we also see that as they rebuilt the altar and began to practice their worship, Their fear subsided and as that fear subsided, something became very clear to them, the mission that God had given them to. What God had called them here for. Verse 6, look at it with me. It tells us, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But there's this tension. It says, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. You see, friends, when the cloudiness and the confusion and the chaos of their fears began to be quelled and set aside, all of a sudden the vision for why God had brought them here began to become very crystal clear to them. When worship gets prioritized, this is the third characteristic, it clarifies our focus for mission. It clarifies our focus for mission. The more that the gospel permeates our heart and the more the Holy Spirit renews our mind, the clearer we begin to see the mission that God has called us to. And clarity reveals what it is that we ought to be saying yes to and clarity reveals what it is that we've got to say no to in the world. You see, we begin to leave with this clarity. We begin to leave the realm of "Can I do this?" or uh, "Do I want to do this?" or "Should I do this?" And we begin to enter into the realm of God has called us to this. He's leading us. We've got no other direction to go. There's a clarity and a conviction that comes. You see, friends, saying yes to God means identifying what it is that he's set in front of us. And the second half of verse 6 says this. Right in the middle of their worship, all of a sudden they realized, wait. The foundations have not been laid. There's more work to be done. We identify what it is that God has set in front of us and we pursue it by faith. You see, so often in our life, the yes in following God as we pursue Him only gets clarified when we begin to say no by faith to the things that we know are not from Him. You see, so often, so many of the difficulties in obeying God and trusting Him in your life is not because He's not wanting to make things clear or hasn't made things clear But you're carrying everything that you've compiled. And you're bringing it along. When God is saying, you can't do what I'm calling you to do. If you keep dragging all that stuff with you. And you've got to trust him. To say no to the things that are deterring and distracting. To release the things that God's already taken care of. That you keep taking hold of. And to trust in the way he's going. To work. And that's what worship does, friends. Worship may not give you the final answer to all of your questions in life, to every decision that you have to make, or to every situation you're facing. Don't think that I, I believe just because you show up in this room one day a week and for an hour or so of the week that you're going to walk away. And man, I had some decisions to make this week. I know exactly what I've got to do uh, to make that decision. I've got a question that's really been in my heart and mine has been heavy on me. But, but now I know what I'm supposed to do. So walk. I mean, it's not like everything is hunky-dory when you walk away. And that's a technical term. I need you to know that. But let me tell you what does happen every time. In worship, God may not answer your questions every one. He may not speak to every decision that has to be made or situation. But he always clarifies the next step for you to trust and obey. You see, I know one of the reasons God doesn't give us the big picture so often, said, go this way, is we're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going that way. That's why he says, here's the next step. Will you trust me here? Because the person you're going to be when you get to where he's leading you is not the person you are standing here looking. But it is the person you are becoming as you say yes to him every step along the way. Dying to self, living for him. God works this way because more than an answer far more than a solution or a decision or even a direction he wants to give to you. He is working to draw you close to himself for communion. You see, God wants to show you far more than just a simple answer or or, or solution to a situation. He wants to show you his heart. He wants to show you his glory. And he wants you to be able to see and to discern all things of this life for his glory. That's why Romans 12:1 and 2 tells us, "Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world any longer, brethren and sisters, but be renewed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can discern God's good, perfect, and pleasing will." This is what God is working for, friends. Worship as a faithful daily living to love God supremely in all of life makes clear and plain what He wants to do through your life. And worship brings clarity to daily life as we walk by faith in communion with and obedience to God. And that in turn strengthens our focus on serving His mission. And we get to verses 7 through 9. We see where the exiles realized, okay, there's more work to do. They've clarified the vision. They know what it is. And so they set the wheels in motion. They began to delegate the work. They began to uh, contract with other people. If it's outside their skill set and not able to do it, let's get the work moving. Let's find whatever we have to do, whoever we have to get. And let's get the stuff here so we can get the work moving forward. So they went to work ordering goods, delegating tasks, and rebuilding the foundation of the temple. And we see the fourth compelling reason for the priority of worship here. It's when worship gets prioritized, it fuels missional labor. It fuels missional labor. It not only unites us, friends, it not only quells our fears... It not only clarifies the mission, but now it fuels the labor to accomplish the mission. That's what we begin to see in 7 through 9. They are getting after it. They're getting stuff done. They lose themselves in the work because it's very clear, this is why we have come. This is what God is doing, and we're going to expend our lives to see this get accomplished in our day. Nothing fuels motivation to serve God like knowing what it is he's called you to do. Man, when you've got a clear vision of what God has called you to, it provides a fuel to serve in your labor for that mission. And a very potent formula for missional fuel for us to serve the mission of God is given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's this, it's the why, it's the what, it's the who, it's the how. We start with the why. Why why do we serve this? Because God has called and compelled us in love. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, for we believe that one died for all and therefore all have died and all who have died in him by faith, speaking of Jesus, now live their lives for him by faith. Therefore, we are compelled by his love, constrained, controlled by the love of God. This is the why. You know, even the secular market recognizes this. There's a very famous book out by an author named Simon Sinek, and the title of it is Start With Why. Why? Because when everybody understands what the work is, the work itself becomes the very motivation that fuels the work itself. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Well, we see it here in the scriptures. From why we move to the what? Verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God has given to his people a message and a ministry of reconciliation. We are calling the nations, beginning with our neighbors, to look to Christ and be reconciled to Him. And message means there are words that must be spoken of the hope and the joy and the love and the peace and the goodness of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's also a ministry, there is a labor of demonstrating by the simplest of deeds with our life how good God really is and the very practical nature of that. It tells us this is what God has has given us to because through our message and through our ministry will his mission be accomplished to reconcile all things to himself when he says who verse 17 and 18 of 2nd Corinthians Paul tells us this if any man is in Christ he is a what a new creation the old has gone behold the new has come Every person who has been made new by God in Jesus Christ is the who of this missional labor. Those who have been made new by God are the ones who are called to serve his redemptive mission. And then how, how, verses 19 and 20, the how comes forth as we proclaim the good news of forgiveness and of cleansing from sin in Jesus' name, as we proclaim the newness that he makes to us And ultimately we see that this missional fuel culminates in the finished work of Jesus Christ in verse 21 when he writes, For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that by him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the mission And it's why our gathered worship is so important. It fuels us. You see, the priority of worship fuels the mission through our community as we carry out our ministry and declare our message among one another to the whole world. Verse 10 through 13, something very interesting transpires though. Look with me, I'm going to read these verses for us. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid, this this monumental moment of celebration in verse 12 goes on to say but many of the priests and levites and heads of the fathers houses Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. You see, as the exiles were serving the Lord, they were responding to the one who it is that was leading them. And Ezra 3, 10 to 13 captures this highlight of celebration, but all right in the middle of it, it just stops for a moment and, and, and introduces us to this depth of sorrow, this grief that becomes overwhelming to some. For the people broke out in praise and thanksgiving to God and they're singing the psalms that King David had written for them. It's as if one of those southwest Missouri, Ozark wintertime sunsets all of a sudden captured everybody's attention and the sky was filled with this glorious display of beauty that just could not be denied. And it just stopped them in their tracks for a moment. But then at the same moment, some of them began to weep. It tells us that their voice, both the shouts of praise and the weepings, rose so that the people all around them only heard one voice. One voice. Shouts of joy and weeps of grief sounded like one voice to the people around them. You see, Ezra is telling us something here, friends. He says this, the older people wept, the younger people shouted for joy. The older generation were grieved because they had seen the glory of Solomon's temple, nothing compared to it. And they knew that what they were beholding wasn't even comparable to the glory of Solomon's temple. But the younger generation, well, they were born in exile. They'd never even seen the grassland, let alone the temple itself. And so they were so excited about the amount of work that they'd been able to accomplish that they were overwhelmed with joy. And and it's this mix of responses that was rising up as one voice and was undiscernible to the peoples around, but just provided one voice of testimony and witness to all who heard the sound. Now let me give to you this fifth reason why worship must be prioritized. Because mission culminates in greater glory as a testimony to the Lord. When God leads his people in mission, he is doing it to multiply worship. And in that multiplication, there is a testimony that arises from his people for all the peoples of the earth. The response of the exiles to the initial worship uh, work was one of uh, spontaneous worship. I mean, one commentator said it this way, that true faith praises God even when the answer hasn't materialized. They're worshiping God like the temple's been rebuilt and all they've got is the footing. (laughs) Uh, There's a little more work to be done. They were so happy it didn't matter. But within that worship laid a spectrum of responses. Both generations, listen to me, both generations had compelling reasons for their response. Neither being more justified than the other. But the text tells us that both joined as one voice for the people who heard them. Mixed responses rose as one voice to testify of the Lord's work among the people. Friends, we talk a lot about the generation gap in the church today. And a lot of churches are infected by it. It's not something to be avoided. This is a church for young people. This is a church for old people. As a matter of fact, the gap of generations is something to be pursued and cultivated to close it. To close it. You see a church without a younger generation tearing through it and typically tearing up a lot of what they touch in the midst of it. When you don't have that, there is a miserable silence in that church that's typically accompanied by a looming stench of death. It's coming for it because they don't have a generation to hand off and entrust the gospel to. Now, when you are in a church without the older generation, let me tell you, it's like riding up the Pikes Peak Road Rally at 120 miles an hour with a four-year-old driving the car. And the car doesn't have any brakes. So even if you win and get to the top first, it's going to be bad. There is great wisdom and counsel for us to guard against any gap in generational ideology in any place that it may emerge. Ezra teaches us that the generations need each other. The young men had the vigor to build the temple, but they needed the wisdom that was symbolized by the gray hair of the older ones, the seasoned citizens, if you will. No one has all the answers. No one has all of the ability. So church, may our prayer be, Lord, make us a church of every generation, full of the generation in which we live, but always with an eye towards the generation that will come after us. But through that generational gap also arises what is known as a generational tension. And this also can potentially produce problems. Despising what is because it doesn't compare with what was. It usually starts this way. You know, back in the day. I know that hurts, doesn't it? That hurts. We're the adults. It's ours to get over. But there are times when back in the day is the best counsel that can be given for the day that we are in. But you know, there's another prophet that was active at this time. His name was Haggai. And listen to what he said to the people at this point in the building. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, he said this. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He says this. Hey, all you old people. Everybody over the age of 30. What? What? He says this. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And just as they thought they were about to be vindicated in their position, he flips and he says this. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What you see is right, he says, but it's not all that there is, nor is it all that there shall be. This isn't about how great the glory days were. It's not even about how strong the days are today. It is about what I have promised and nothing will thwart me from fulfilling my covenant promise through you. Haggai tells us, do not despise the day of small beginnings nor small advancements. Do not think that this generation is correcting all the wrongs of the past generation. And do not think that this generation could never possibly compare nor be greater than the last generation. Both of those are equally wrong. You know, I remember the earlier days of our church, the earlier days. We're looking at 18 years this fall, 17 and a half as of now, I guess. But just a few short years ago in 2018, we were turning dirt for a north facility right outside that door there, doors that weren't there at the time, actually. That seems like four lifetimes ago at this point. That was exciting. In 2009, when we were relocating to this property, I I snuck onto the service road that they had blocked off on either end and I brought my video camera so I could video them dynamiting the rock so that they could level this big hill to put a building on it to begin with. I have pictures of of us gathering on the front of this property right out here that was 12 or 14 feet higher than it is now. And we're cutting trees as if that's going to make the big difference on clearing the land. I mean, once those three trees get cut, we're ready to build. But it didn't matter. Because the fellowship that we enjoyed in the midst of those cuttings, if I go back a little further, I can tell you about July of 2004 when we had white dust all over us from demolishing walls of sheetrock and ripping them off. And, and, and the soreness of our muscles from jackhammering over a thousand feet of ceramic tile off of the, uh, uh, the foundation itself. I can show you pictures of baptisms in swimming pools, outdoors and indoors, and in feed troughs on the back of this property. I can show you one after the other, and with each one there's a temptation to go, man, this was it, this was great, but I'm going to tell you, there's not a greater picture I can show you than what you saw this morning. And tomorrow that will be the foundation that we wake up and we serve the mission of God's kingdom from. Because they will have kids and they will have grandkids. And you won't be here to do the work. You will have entrusted them, entrusted it to them. You see, friends, yesterday's celebration is never a reasoning for absence of faith for today's faithfulness. It's but the foundation and a launch pad. The generation gap and the generational tension makes me ask two questions of all of us number 1 will we as a church make space for every generation will we be committed to make space for every generation those who rejoice alongside those who weep not just the young and the old will we make space for those who to love those who are different than us who struggle differently than us you see there are many ways in which this gap can emerge That we must be committed to share the gospel and bridge the gap. The space that we must create will demand an intentional decision. Not once to go, yes, let's do it. But every time a decision arises, we've got to put that on the table and say, this is why we exist. It's got to be a guiding principle for us as we prioritize worship. The second question that I would ask of us is this. Will we follow God to call every generation to die to self and to live for Christ? Will we, call, or will we follow God to call every generation to die to self and live for Christ? Will we hallow days of old or will we honor God in the day in which we live? Will we forsake our history or will we hold to an unchanging word, word in an ever-changing culture? What's it going to be? Well, it's never been this hard before, Pastor. Whatever. Will we serve today so that if Jesus tarries, our grandchildren's grandchildren will have a faithful, gospel-preaching, gospel-sending church in which to commune with God and find community with one another? These are the questions You see, friends, there's a temptation for us, as parents especially, to serve and do the labor and and bring our children into what we provide for them instead of training them what they've got to be about from the very beginning. There's a temptation for us to hand off to our children something that they never experienced the building of and the serving within. And when we are gone and when our voices are no longer present, they don't know what to do because it was just all handed to them and never trained for them. Or will we entrust to them the ministry and the message? Will their hands be involved in the serving of God's kingdom and will their hearts be filled and will we nurture their hearts to make sure that we are filling them with Jesus and they will be trained in how it is that you from the earliest of days in following Jesus are not about just giving gratitude for comfort and convenience but are learning by faith to die to yourself so that you can live for him so that whatever the threat may arise they say you know what it may not have been this big but I remember having to die to self when I was a kid I remember watching mama and daddy say no more to this we're going to serve the Lord and in remembering now it's my time to do it for the children that will come after me it's not a one and done question it's one we put on the front of our minds in pursuing God and we don't ever let it go a church that dies to self to pursue God is the only way we can remain faithful. One last application in our close. We may not be turning dirt now, but make no mistake we are in the midst of breaking up fallow ground. Many hearts have been hardened subtly towards the Lord, towards the church, and towards spiritual faithfulness in this season by neglect, even by absence over the last couple of years. And where church became a void, other things began to fill the vacuum in our time and our schedule and our energy. Haggai speaks to us today, friends, with the same message. We are to work for the Lord is with us. We are to serve because he is fulfilling his covenant among us. His spirit is residing here with us. He is leading us in his mission. Will we die to self to see Christ proclaimed among the nations? How about you? Those of us who know the faithfulness of God should not simply relish in the days gone by, but remember it and tell it to encourage all who are coming up after us. And by wisdom and counsel, may we raise up a generation to trust the Lord so that what they see in future days will be a greater representation of the promise of God. The latter glory will be greater than the former. The real power of worship reminds us of this. With all that we have seen God do, church, how could we not trust Him for all that He's calling us to do? We need a move of God to awaken us. Let's pray.